Good afternoon. I hope people can hear me. My name is uh, Barbara Shercliffe. I'm a professor in Social Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you uh, here to, uh, this evening. Um, I'm also the co-chair of the College of Education's Diversity Committee, and four years ago we, we had the idea that it would help and engage our students if we had um, forums around critical issues facing schools, facing teachers, and but to bring people in from outside the university to talk to our students, and to bring people in from the school district to talk to our students, as well as um, have the students engage with our faculty. So um, this is the fourth year, um, and the, uh, the topic for tonight is religion and the public school. This year is um, uh, going to set the tone for the future success of this event. And I have to mention that uh, Dean Colleen Kennedy has always been supportive. Four years ago when we asked her if uh, she would support our forums, not only did she support them and she says, well, why don't we uh, uh, have refreshments, why don't we uh, bring people onto campus, and she's been uh, very, very uh, supportive of our, all of our work. So I'd like to take the opportunity to introduce uh, Dean Colleen Kennedy. Thank you so much, Dr. Shercliffe. It's just a pleasure to see uh, an overflowing room of uh, teachers in, in training. We're so pleased that you're here uh, tonight. And I will say that uh, diversity is a very strongly held belief in the College of Education. And if you've looked at our conceptual framework, you know that we stand for collaboration, academic excellence, research, and ethical practice. And part of what we come to know as educators is what ethical practice truly means. The objectives of these forums is to help College of Education faculty, graduate and undergraduate students, as well as educational professionals, develop awareness, comfort and competence in addressing and discussing issues of religion in the classroom and in school settings. Religious diversity and freedom are deeply held values in America today. Our nation has matured since its founding over 200 years ago. We've become religiously diverse. There are now over 2,000 religious denominations and traditions in the United States. And as educators, it's important for us to consider how religion influences teacher and student experiences and interactions within public school settings the legal issues related to religion and the schools, and the conflicts that often emerge over school curricula, calendars, and activities. That's why it's so very important for us to be here tonight, and I want to express my appreciation to our community leaders for being with us and leading this discussion, which we hope will be very enlightening for you. I'd also like to inform you that this panel tonight uh, will be shown on iTunes U. We have over 5,000 tracks of freely available public information uh, that's of interest to teachers and others. Uh, we have some bookmarks for you uh, on the table as you exit that you can take with you. And they, this will be shown at itunes.usf.edu. Once again, thank you so much for coming this evening.
Okay. Um, my name is Harold Kelder. I'm the Associate Dean in the College of Education, and I work closely with the Diversity Committee. And um, I should let you know that each of these forums that we've had, as, as uh, Dr. Shercliffe indicated, this is our fourth faculty-student forum. Um, each forum is set up around a series of three events, actually. This first event brings in leaders from local faith communities. Um, on October 27th, also in this room, in the Tico room, uh, same time, 530 to 7.30, will be uh, school administrators from public schools in the surrounding area. And then the last event in this series on religion in the classroom will um, have USF faculty from various units on campus uh, within the College of Education and perhaps elsewhere um, addressing the same issues of, of religion in the classroom and how can, how can all of us address these issues in effective ways? How can you, many of you, as future teachers, future educators, um, address these issues in comfortable ways? Um, and to the benefit of children in our schools, in our K-12 schools. So this evening, we have with us uh, four individuals. Uh, to my, my far right, uh, Doug Joseph uh, from the philosophy department. Next to him, to his left, is Father Ed Rich from St. Catherine's Episcopal Church. Uh, to his left is Brian Lamoy from the Catholic Diocese of St. Petersburg. And to my immediate right um, is Dr. Mohammed Sultan uh, from the Muslim community. Um, each of these individuals, what we've asked them to do is think about and talk about for a little, just a brief presentation on what issues that they see are in their faith community that might arise in the public school context or in the school context um, at this present time in history? How might teachers respond to these issues in a respectful and appropriate manner in helping their students grow? And what might be offensive, what might uh, be avoided within the context of a school's context? Um, so uh, I would suggest uh, what we'll do is we'll, each person will present for about five to seven minutes. Um, we will have an opportunity for dialogue, dialogue among the four of them. And then we will open it up to questions from the audience. And uh, we have only microphones up here, so we'll need to repeat your questions. So keep your questions concise and to the point. Um, and we'll try to repeat them. And then the panelists will address the questions as they come up. Um, does anyone have a preference for going first? Why don't we start from my right and go this in this direction? Uh, good afternoon. A great Islamic greeting. Peace on to you. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, I represent the Islamic community. I come from Islamic Society of Tampa Bay area. I was located uh, on Sly and Orient by Tampa Tech. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I think uh, uh, this issue is very important for teachers. Uh, uh, as. Uh, we know the United States uh, Constitution is, uh, uh, is uh, religion is, uh, uh, there are, like she mentioned, that, that uh, many people come from different uh, affiliation and uh, uh, perspectives. And so in the school system, 
And from our perspective as Muslims, I think the general impression is there is a little understanding or basic understanding of the Islamic faith among teachers. And there have many, been many experiences with the teacher have difficulties in doing. Uh, so I, I suggest, you know, first of all, that uh, teachers uh, have some in uh, you know communication or with the, the institutions like ours to understand uh, give some uh, perspective so they know how to handle some students because as uh, in, in islamic faith we religion is a part of our daily activities it's not just once a while so sometimes even at the college level uh, we uh, students will have problems uh, for example uh, as Muslims, we are required to pray five times a day. Uh, and uh, sometimes students will spend seven, six hours in the campus. And two issues, finding a place to, uh, actually three issues, for example, when coming to prayers, finding a place to do the washing for the prayer. Uh, if you go do it in the bathroom, people look at you crazy. What's this guy doing? You know, washing his hand and feet. Uh, second, finding a place to pray. And second, thirdly, leaving the classrooms, you know, without offending the teacher, why the, the students is leaving. Uh, the second issue, for example, holidays, uh, we have the month we fast. Um, we use the lunar calendar in our uh, religious activities. Uh, uh, we know, for example, fasting month of Ramadan, and we have our holiday. And our holiday fluctuates uh, uh, every year for, you know, 10 days less than previous year. So. Uh, students need to take off to celebrate holidays. Sometimes uh, uh, students, uh, they have uh, <clears throat> time uh, difficulties because uh, exam schedules or uh, assignment schedules, so uh, the understanding between the teacher and the student that they need to have it. And we have find uh, many instances where students skip their holidays because they don't want to penalize or fare the course. Uh, on Fridays, for example, we're required to, our congregation Friday prayer is uh, 1.30 to uh, 2.30. So it's required by adults to attend it. So how we accommodate to that? I know in, in USF here, they made available for them a room in Marshall Center where they can do the prayer students here. Uh, so to uh, the dress for females, as you know, uh, dress, headscarf, and uh, you know, long dress, also making understanding. So, uh, dietary, sometimes restrictions, like we don't eat pork or, uh, or uh, ham or anything in food. In public school, this has been a problem before. We're making it aware of the, these things. Uh, even simply like in, uh, uh, some school assignments for kids or students like drawing. Uh, as Muslims, we're not allowed to draw things that humans, you know, make with hand, draw any picture of a human being, which anything has soul. So given this assignments of, uh, uh, and uh, might create conflict between teacher and students and so forth. So uh, what we see is uh, 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 information. Uh, to need to be uh, conveyed to the teachers, and we are willing to help. In fact, uh, as uh, as uh, our society, our uh, we wish we are the largest uh, institution in the state of Florida. Uh, we do offer uh, have open house every year in November, 
And this year, we're going to be in November 7, where we open the opportunity to the community at large to come and learn and mingle with the, uh, with the Muslim community to create some understanding and dialogue. Thank you. Thank you very much. First of all, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to be here. I have uh, made my career in uh, the Catholic Church as a teacher in Catholic schools, um, as well as an administrator of Catholic uh, schools, and over the last 13 years now overseeing religious education programs for our Catholic schools, as well as our parish uh, Sunday school or religious education programs. In responding to the question, I, I uh, certainly would want to uh, reiterate the, the foundational principle of the concern for respect for the variety of practices. For Catholics, for the Catholic community, there are fewer food restrictions or, or clothing requirements or whatever that might in any way carry over into the school day. So I uh, approached this topic from the curriculum perspective. Uh, especially in the last several years since uh, Pope John Paul II and currently Benedict XVI, there has been an effort to um, emphasize that there is not a dualism between matters of faith and matters of, of learning and, and um, development of the human understanding. Uh, more and more, we are trying to uh, emphasize that there are not topics that could not or should not be addressed in the curriculum that are required of the, of the disciplines of science or social studies or, or whatever areas might be uh, appropriate that in some way are not um, of uh, a responsibility of that school, but that are more the responsibility of families and the Catholic Church community. So in, for example, in recent times, we've had the challenges of issues like um, teaching the development of the species and um, can we teach evolution? Can there be creationism and all of those seemingly hot button topics? For the Catholic Christian community, the concern is not so much that certain things are taught that may require us to give a religious context or a, a framework in which to understand those things, but that in fact there is no denial of the opportunity for that perspective to at least be um, respectfully accepted on the part of students and families. We would look to the separation of church and state in the most positive ways with regard to uh, issues of allowing the schooling systems, public school realm in particular, to cover those topics that are appropriate. So for example, in the media of, of late, a great deal of concern about things like embryonic stem cell research and whatnot. For those who teach science, we have an obligation to teach all of the matters of science that will allow those young people to be appropriately prepared for their fields of endeavor and profession. It is the responsibility, in our understanding, of the Catholic community to uphold the ethical parameters that the entire system would look to. And so our uh, opportunity to impact the curriculum is more not at the individual classroom level beyond respectful uh, accommodation of, of those perspectives or questions on the part of students that can be deferred certainly to their families and to the faith community, but also to be able to uh, realize that district 
curriculum guidelines, uh, standards, benchmarks, whatever the, the iterations might be, will certainly uphold the general ethical, medical ethics, or, or other frameworks that are appropriate. And the religious overlay is not necessarily the responsibility, certainly in the public school classroom, of the classroom teachers. A respect for the variety of faith perspectives there is certainly uh, what we would advocate. I would reiterate the concern about uh, non-punitive response to those days that students may take off for religious observance, Good Friday or, or other issues, that teachers um, would, within their own realm of responsibility, not schedule something during that time that would in some way adversely affect the student's ability to compete and to continue their progress in the classroom. And last but not least, I simply want to emphasize that, again, from the Catholic Christian perspective, because our community uh, is, a not, is a contextualist con uh, tradition in, with regard to the scriptures, we are not bound and would not expect any system, and certainly not the public school system, to be bound to a strictly Bible-based perspective on teaching certain uh, aspects, but to be open to that along with other theories, whether they are in the sciences, the social sciences, history, whatever areas might, uh, might be affected. I hope that's a helpful framework and context, and I look forward to questions that might clarify that. Please permit me also to express my gratitude for this invitation. It's a real honor and privilege for me and for all of us to be here and have a chance to share our thoughts and to share them with all of you. The task you've placed before us and for the other panelists as well, is perhaps one that is beyond our ability to speak. For the congregations, the communities we serve are as diverse as this gathering is, and therefore the issues that might be true in the Episcopal Church or St. Catharines are as diverse as that congregation, that denomination. And that would be true, I think, of the other panelists' perspective as well. And so I don't choose to speak directly to any one issue, although there are a variety of them. But rather, I'd like to put this question in a different context. For it seems to me that the issue really is as ancient as the first century and contemporary as the 21st century. And some who've spoken in the past may be ones who guide us in that way. For instance, think of John Donne, who lived in the 17th century. Among the many things that he said was a quote that perhaps is well known to you. He said, all mankind is of one author and is one volume. One man dies, one chapter is not torn out of the book, but translated into a better language. And every chapter must be so translated. No man is an island entire of itself. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Dunn's concern at the height of the Renaissance was the notion that people are not isolated from one another, but rather humankind is connected. A 17th century view from Renaissance person echoed in the last century when John Fitzgerald Kennedy was about to be inaugurated as president. And he defined the issue in a different fashion, but the same sense. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, 
but rather what you can do for your country. And some of his biographies suggest that that thought that he seemed to make so well known to us in his inauguration speech actually came from notes he kept. And one of those notes found in his, his library was of a funeral address for John Greenleaf Whittier, and that the funeral address for Whittier took place in 1892. And the notes he found said, here may we be remembered that man is most honored, not by what a city may do for him, but by what he has done for the city. St. Paul, writing in the first century to the church in Corinth, said, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I do not need you. So there might be no division in the body, St. Paul says. All of its organs feel the same concern for another. The issue that we all struggle with, the one as ancient as the first century and as contemporary as today, is how do we affirm and honor individual gifts and at the same time live our lives as interdependent people? Can we learn to live believing that the only way we benefit individually is as a result of the strengthening and enriching of the whole community and the well-being of all people. The marks of people living in community might include mutual respect, not tolerance of one's position at the expense of another, not abandoning one's personal concern to create a false sense of harmony. Another mark might be individual freedom, the ability of all persons to choose from among meaningful alternatives and yet to be held accountable for those choices. The standard by which those choices might be measured is does that choice benefit others? A third mark of this kind of community might be a zeal for cooperation rather than for competition or for coercion. Not exclusivity, but rather mutual interdependence. How then might teachers respond to this issue, this broad, multi-central issue, one that is present not only in the Episcopal Church that I represent, but I venture to say in all faith communities? First, I would suggest that teachers expect of themselves and of their students a rigorous pursuit for excellence. To be the very best one can be in order to give the best one has to the whole community. James wrote in the first century in his letter, not many of you should become teachers. For you may be certain that we who teach shall ourselves be judged with greater strictness. I would suggest then that teachers guard against prejudice, guard against preconceived notions, or incomplete or false information. In order to do so, teach from original sources, not from second or tertiary sources. Teach what was said or written by the author, not by commentators. Encourage students to form their own opinions from the original sources. And what leads? 
to offense is the denigration of another, that which pits one person against another. Seek instead that within honest discernment the gifts of others to seek those gifts and then build a stronger community, honor those gifts. Our national motto is E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. Together we can embrace that motto again and become one people enriched by the infinite variety of human skill and knowledge and talent. My offering to this gathering is that we affirm by knowing those differing traditions and where we do not know, seek out one who represents that tradition so that we not make false judgments about those religious traditions. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm here not, I suppose, as the uh, representative of a faith community. I uh, am an atheist. Uh, I like to think of myself as an orthodox atheist, but uh, uh, <laughs> the uh, atheists, it's, uh, we don't have an organization, uh, particularly, uh, and uh, you'll notice that atheists are, for the most part, not proselytizers. You'll, you'll rarely see someone standing on a street corner waving a copy of, you know, Einstein's papers on general relativity saying this is all there is uh, or something like this. Uh, we're, we're not into that kind of thing. Uh, nevertheless, uh, even though we're not uh, in some strict sense a, a faith community, uh, it's probably correct to say that in the last uh, few decades or so in the United States, uh, we've seen something of a, an atheist revival, if you will. Uh, books such as uh, Richard Dawkins' uh, The God Delusion or Christopher Hitchens' God is Not Great, uh, for some reason or another, made it to the uh, high up on the uh, uh, bestseller list, so uh, you know, atheists are sort of out of the closet. Uh, what I'd like to discuss uh, very briefly are some of the issues that uh, atheists find uh, in some ways annoying and problematic uh, in the public schools, and also things that uh, we think are desirable uh, and that we find actually quite useful uh, and significant. Among the annoyances, uh, I think, uh, one of the, the greatest is, is a sort of presumption of uh, what you might call uh, universalism, uh, that uh, it's often assumed that everyone believes in some kind of god. Uh, typically, everyone believes in some monotheistic uh, god. Uh, atheists don't. Um, on atheistic principles, uh, the Hebrew Bible, for example, we regard as a collection of interesting myths uh, from the Iron Age, uh, but there is no more reason to believe it's a true account of the way the world was uh, or is than there is to believe that the ancient Mayan uh, religion somehow latched onto the truth. Uh, we're sort of equal opportunity uh, in that respect. Um, another thing that uh, atheists find highly problematic at a curricular level uh, is the presentation uh, in biology classes of creationism uh, as some kind of viable scientific alternative uh, to uh, natural selection. Uh, and this is often phrased, I think mistakenly, phrased as a battle between a theory of evolution on the one hand and a theory of creation uh, on the other. There really is no theory of creation in any interesting scientific sense. Um, there also isn't a theory of evolution. Evolution is not a theory, it is a fact. Uh, natural selection is the theory, or the theoretical mechanism that explains the fact of uh, evolution. Um, and it's extremely annoying and frustrating to see 
uh, you know, constantly people saying, well, you know, evolution is a theory, just a theory among others. Uh, and this uh, we find uh, extremely problematic because it suggests that, well, you know, you could believe in anything. Um, in a science class, uh, I uh, am emphatic in my belief that uh, children ought to be, you know, acquainted with the best available, the rudiments of the best available scientific uh, accounts we have today, best available scientific theories we have today. Uh, there's no reason to teach uh, creationism uh, as anything other, I mean, no reason to teach it to court, there's no reason to teach it at all, uh, and indeed any more than there would be to teach that, that, that the earth is stationary uh, and that the sun goes around the earth. Uh, that is a demonstrably false uh, belief, as is, uh, we, I, I take it, uh, any version of creationism that I know of. Um, and final thing, or maybe two more things, one thing that uh, atheists at a curricular level find uh, annoying uh, is often in discussions, um, when, when it gets into ethical issues, there's typically a presumption, which I think is demonstrably false, but a presumption that belief in a god is a prerequisite, prerequisite excuse me, for moral behavior, uh, that you can't be a trustworthy, uh, morally responsible person uh, unless you believe in some supernatural being. Uh, that we find deeply annoying. Um, and finally, a minor, among the minor annoyances uh, is the uh, recitation of the 1954 version of the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, which makes reference to God. Uh, before 1954, the Pledge of Allegiance had no mention of God. That, were the in, that was inserted largely as a campaign to show that the uh, United States was a thoroughly Christian nation, uh, or at least monotheistic nation, uh, in opposition to the vile communists. Uh, but that, uh, I think, is a, is a, is a minor issue. Uh, questions about school prayer have, have, so far as I can see, been uh, essentially settled uh, and uh, relatively uh, uninteresting at this stage. Uh, what we find desirable and I think quite useful in, in recent developments in, uh, in public schools is the, the teaching of religion as a historical phenomenon. Um, I think it's very important that uh, people become acquainted uh, as they're educated with the, the rudiments of a variety of religious systems uh, and their historical development. Uh, nobody would deny, no sensible person could deny their religion has played an absolutely essential role. Uh, in the development of uh, uh, all uh, civilizations. Uh, insofar as we don't believe in God, we nevertheless do believe in religion. <laughs> and there is this phenomenon. People get together and you know, have these beliefs. Um, and I think that is something to be encouraged. I think it is also useful and important uh, to see not just that religions as a sort of historical phenomenon, but also as a sociological phenomenon. Um, it is very interesting and, uh, and useful, I think, for children to understand that you know, uh, religions do have, uh, you know, they, they meet certain kinds of needs for you know, community solidarity and, and whatnot, and it can be useful to look at uh, variations in religious practice, for example, variations in religious belief, variations uh, of sort of across uh, time and, uh, and space and across cultures as uh, sort of expressions, if you will, of, of different ways of uh, societies dealing with uh, various and sundry kinds of problems, all of which can be done without presuming uh, that the religions, that the beliefs uh, uh, in the religions are in fact true, uh, in the same way that we wouldn't think that you know the Mayans had this interesting religion, and of course there really were these gods who demanded human sacrifice. Uh, we now think that's uh, highly unlikely to be true. At any rate, uh, I will close with that and await questions. Understanding that we now have an opportunity as a panel to yes. talk with each other. Is that Jump. correct? Yes, that sounds like a good plan. And I'd like to begin by talking with what I hope will become a good friend. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing should stand in the way of it. I'd like to suggest that a dialogue that we might have 
and that you might have begins with some careful defining of the terms we use. What is the definition for religion? There are some assumptions made and comments throughout the community and including in your address about what that word means. If we were to go back and look to the dictionary and say that a dictionary definition will be one we will all use, religion might be seen as a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, or purpose of the universe and often contains a moral code. Therefore, based on that, by even your comments, Atheism is a set of beliefs, and so one, if we were to follow the second article of the Constitution, would have to recognize that atheism, Roman Catholicism, Islam, each is being addressed in that one clause, in that amendment, which says that the government cannot establish a religion. Therefore, any religious perspective, whether it be atheism or the Episcopal Church's understanding of Christianity, cannot be imposed upon anyone else. So there may be abuses by any, any religious entity by imposing that, and yet, and yet to deny the opportunity for one to express his or her religious convictions, those beliefs, is equally inappropriate. So it might be, for instance, that in a classroom a teacher in an elementary setting where you have those students from most of the day and wants to speak of religion, remember the definition I gave, might allow each student one day throughout the course of that month to express his or her religious convictions in some version of either common or prayer. And that person simply does his or her religious practice as an illustration of that religion but not imposing it on others. But it would be, I think, inappropriate for the teacher to require all students to follow what the teacher might do. Do you understand what I'm trying to suggest? It's a distinction. The second thing I'd like to suggest to you is, indeed, if, if we understand that religion is a belief, then the belief that there is a God or not a God is equally valid. And if we're to debate those beliefs, we should once again go back and ask, what is it that you believe in how? Many Christians would not want to affirm the so-called creationist story because we know in Genesis there are two different stories of creation, not one. And we know that within Genesis and those two stories, the order of the events of creation are not the same. We also know in Genesis there are two different accounts of the flood. The number of creatures in the ark, in one case, is two by two, in the other case, sevens. We also know that if we look at that scripture, it is not meant to be interpreted as science. And therefore, theologians, coming from a Judeo-Christian perspective, would not want to enter into that debate because anyone who sees scripture as if it were a scientific document misunderstands its very nature. It is a statement of faith. This is how we understand our relationship with God as we understand him. That we are entitled to say. We also recognize that the way one understands how we as humans have evolved from whatever form is in itself a series of beliefs. There is no factual data support that otherwise would still have dinosaurs in some form running around, but fashion running around. And so we have to be careful, careful that we don't impose our system of beliefs on others, but rather provide each the opportunity to express them as he or she is convinced. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to 
to echo certainly your perspective uh, with regard to taking a look at religion as a phenomenon both sociologically and historically and add to that the perspective that was just shared with us with regard to the fact that the literature of the scripture can certainly see that um, in the testaments themselves, there are diversities, the Genesis 1-2 and all of those issues. That is why for the Catholic Christian community, I would certainly say, because we are uh, contextualists, as, as your um, uh, perspective on the scripture just uh, evidence, is exactly what is operative for us. So there is not a need to stick to only the scripture or to presume in any way that it is scientific, but it is a testament of faith. And it is in that context that we simply would ask um, our students to take a look at whatever comes down the path, whatever is discovered in human understanding. And we've learned over time in the Catholic community, certainly when we try to make an amalgam of those two, that that is a mistake, with all due respect to Galileo and others, for example. We've come to recognize that we do not have to see this opposition between faith and reason, but in fact that we look at it as two aspects that enrich the human person, and provide the opportunity to consider all that the human intellect can uncover and discover and understand as a development of, for us, what is the, the uh, gift of the divine. And so, um, Fides et Ratio, which is a document of Pope John Paul II, where he took up this issue, said very strongly that this is why, he says, I may, or said, I make this strong and insistent appeal, I trust, uh, that faith and philosophy recover the profound unity which allows them to stand in harmony with their nature without compromising their mutual autonomy. The pharisia, or the boldness, of faith must be matched by the boldness of reason. His concern is that we not uh, be impinged in any way by exploring all that the human mind can uncover without ultimately coming back for our faith tradition and saying, for our, uh, our perspective, it is because God willed it to be so. So the mechanics that are expressed in the scripture with the diversity that is, that is even there in those testaments is the best science, quote unquote, perhaps of its day from the observation that was available uh, without any type of instrumentation or scientific uh, inquiry. For us, the importance is that there is a respect in the dialogue to say that what that testament teaches from a faith perspective does not challenge what can be uncovered. And the question on theories, um, again, looking at the definition of theory, to be whatever comes along and is proposed. In the end, can a theory ever ultimately be perfectly proven is the question. And so they are proposals to the human person, to our understanding, to what causes things to be as they are. And lastly, for, from the Catholic perspective again, faith, our understanding is involved in the explanation of the why rather than the how. So the sciences, the social sciences, the philosophies, the, any endeavor of the human mind undertakes an understanding of how things may have happened, how they have occurred. 
The why is the context that enriches. And our hope ultimately would be that the mutual appreciation of those is that there is something that can be gained by that perspective brought into dialogue with whatever scientific principle, learning theory, whatever grows or develops. So again, it's not our expectation that the public school in particular would have a responsibility for teaching a particular uh, science, um, excuse me, religious perspective. In fact, that is what gave rise to the Catholic school system of the United States in particular, the concern that was a proselytism of a particular religious approach that was very prevalent at that time in public schooling. We've come a long way again in the development of that in a recognition of the respect that is due and therefore to presume that you can have a perfectly cleansed completely uh, antiseptic environment that is not in some way impacted by religion in the classroom is not the reality because the individuals to, who are ultimately the most important part of our educational uh, activity are themselves in some way shaped, formed, conditioned by their religious perspectives of their families, of their communities. And so everything is received in the manner of the receiver is a very important concept. And so those who have a faith perspective will certainly uh, embrace that with that in, in the back of their minds and come out with their constructs. Those who would not have an espoused religious uh, faith tradition would see that separately and differently and make their own connections to their understandings and beliefs. Uh, I would like to present a Islamic view about religion. Uh, and there are basic questions uh, as a humans we've been then today and tomorrow we're dealing with. Uh, who created us? Uh, why are we created uh, as a humans? What is our role in life? And what will happen to us when we die? And the other question, uh, who has the authority uh, to tell man, us human being, what to do, what not to do, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what's bad? There are a lot of theories as presented, try to answer these questions because we still tangle with and we will be, be till the end of time. Uh, in Islamic perspective, religion, we look at it as a revelation from the creator. In Arabic, we say Allah. By the way, if you, uh, uh, Tallahassee, if you look at the, after the letter T comes the word Allah, you know, so. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it's been there for a long time, you know. Uh, revelation from Allah in the Arabic word for God to mankind uh, uh, for at least three reasons. One, to introduce, explain himself to us as a human, as a creature. So who is he? If he does exist, uh, either we reach him or uh, he reach for us. We cannot reach him because of our limitations as a human being. We have limitation beyond it. We cannot go. Uh, and second is a uh, uh, communication from him, providing with us, since he is our creator, creator, knowledge that we need as a human being, so we can order, we live in peace and harmony and safety as a human being. As you know, for example, animals, uh, we don't uh, have animals, we don't have uh, here, we didn't invite alligators, snakes to be guests here, 
because we cannot communicate with them. We keep them in zoos and forests. But as a human being, we are, as God created us and preferred us over all other creatures by giving us the mind, the ability to think and reason. So we need a system so me and you, we can live in peace and harmony. And only God can do that. And second, and third one is a way we eventually gonna <clears throat> excuse me meet with Him as the Creator. We look at knowledge. Is there are two knowledge, two types of knowledge as we seek. There is divine knowledge and worldly knowledge. Divine knowledge explains the creation and our existence, and when we adopted, uh, defined to us <clears throat> how we came and the road we take in this life, and. Uh, Worldly knowledge, scientific knowledge, deals with the means of life. If we look throughout history, uh, human beings are the same. In fact, the only species that survive and still surviving is the human race, uh, males and females, and we have the same basic instincts, physiological need and instincts. So the divine knowledge is consistent because it answers to the needs of the human beings and uh, provide with them a code of conduct and behavior that we need. What changes the means of life, and as far as we're concerned, God gave us the freedom as a human being to research and search the earth and authority of earth to improve uh, our means of life and relationship. And that's what we believe in science, is that, that what it does. It relates to the means of life. So in perspective, uh, when a Muslim student comes, he has his own beliefs and morals of conduct. What he, he or she coming to learn one of the worldly sciences that, or that make him or make her a bit, enable her to function in, this soci in, in society, maybe a doctor, engineer, scientist, teachers, whatsoever, uh, while during staying on Earth. So we don't see conflict between science and uh, religion because uh, religion does provide us a, a platform how to conduct our life and destiny of our life from beginning to the end and where we're going after this life. And science provides us how to improve our life as well as life of people around us in communities. So science meant to help us, uh, help the means that we use in our life, make it a lot easier communication and relationships. You know, now we use cellular phone, internet, and, and before they used uh, walking and horses and birds to com communicate. So uh, we, uh, we look at it, science is a complementary to religion. Thank you. Well, let me just uh, uh, add a couple of things here. Uh, first, I'd, I would like to go back just very, very briefly to uh, this notion of sort of belief systems, et cetera. Uh, it's no, there's no question that you know, atheists uh, have some core of, I guess, of, of a belief system uh, to the effect that there are no supernatural entities, uh, that sort of the universe is what it is without uh, invoking anything supernatural. Uh, if you want to call that a religion, it may be you know, uh, etymologically a little bit odd, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll simply leave that aside. Uh, I emphatically do not believe that atheism should be taught uh, in the style of the, the way Stalin's uh, schools did, that, you know, that people should be taught that, well, you know, religion is this silly bourgeois phenomenon we've overcome, and, you know, dialectical materialism is the truth, and there is no God, etc. By the same token, um, there is certainly something very puzzling about the idea that, uh, you know, 
in a place in, in, a, in a society that is supposed to be neutral among uh, various and sundry belief systems, we still have uh, you know the, the 1954 version of the Pledge of Allegiance recited by school children, uh, invoking the existence of this large supernatural being. Um, it does seem to be uh, favoring to some degree, or sort of you know enforcing a certain kind of supernatural belief system. But uh, let me leave that uh, aside. Uh, we surely also do not believe, uh, I, I don't think that anyone holds that all systems of belief are equally valid. Uh, surely uh, the scriptural interpretations and the religion of David Koresh uh, seems defective in some very fundamental ways. Uh, I, uh, I think there's probably uh, very few people who uh, regard Jim Jones uh, as a true prophet of, of some interesting, I mean, of the Jonestown massacre, you may remember. Uh, so clearly there are belief systems that are, you know, dangerous and defective. I don't think that uh, any of the religions represented here this evening uh, fall into that category by, by any stretch. Um, it is a little disappointing that we don't have anyone here representing you know, Mormonism or Hinduism or Buddhism. I mean, there's a lot of religious diversity out there, and it's uh, a bit unfortunate that we're, uh, you know. We, we try. Uh, we, you try, <laughs> you get what you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let me uh, then just uh, wrap up with this notion of theory and uh, where does sort of uh, reference to a supernatural being uh, enter into, uh, into theories. Um, a theory is not as I think it was suggested, some kind of a, a, a best guess uh, that we have. I mean, the, the, the and having a PhD in logic, I can thump the table and uh, say that uh, theory is a, is a set of sentences closed under the relation of deductive consequence uh, from the purely syntactic view of a theory. Uh, what that means is that you know, theories are, you know, things that we use, they typically have, you know, fundamental principles or axioms, uh, uh, and then from those you derive consequences. Uh, you may, uh, if you, when you take a physics class, you learn the basic laws of motion, right, F equals MA, action, reaction, etc. cetera, uh, and then from those you can derive uh, essentially all of mechanics. Uh, my point here is that that's the sort of model that we have of, of, of scientific theories. I will admit, and I'm perfectly cheerfully uh, ready to admit, that scientific explanation must eventually terminate. Uh, and there are two ways in which that can happen. Uh, you can have explanations that get, as it were, ever deeper until they finally bottom out in simply inexplicable facts. Um, consider, for example, the fact that cyanide is poisonous to humans. What explains that? Well, we have a reasonable theory of human physiology and some chemistry, and that would explain that you know, the interaction of the human uh, physiological system with the nasty things in these molecules causes these and these and these right, bad uh, consequences. Um, you could ask further, well, what is it about right, the chemistry that makes it do this? Why is it that these compounds have these characteristic features? And you can explain that in terms of the theory of chemistry. Um, eventually, you're going to get down to very fundamental stuff, such as that you know, it's a scientific uh, fact uh, that there are four bonds on a carbon atom arranged in tetrahedral structure. Uh, you might ask, well, why is it then that uh, carbon atoms have the four bonds arranged as they do? And at some point, you just you can't explain anything. It's just, that's just the way it is, you know, end of story. Likewise, you could have explanations that go back in time, right, further and further, and eventually you will just run out. I mean, if you, if you take uh, contemporary uh, uh, astrophysics, you ask, well, you know, what, what explains, you know, certain features of the universe, you can push back further and further and further and further and further, you'll get to the first, uh, you know, a few microseconds of, uh, of the existence of the universe, uh, and eventually you get back, uh, you know, to, to the very beginning and say, well, what, what, could, what did that come from? There you're on your own. Uh, uh, and, you know, there really is no legitimate 
scientific way of saying, you know, wh how, how things came about this way or that way. The most we can say scientifically, uh, pushing back to the Big Bang singularity as well, there's just nothing outside of, you know, there are no known processes outside of uh, space and time that could account for this. Uh, you're on your own. Uh, but inside, if you will, um, the realm of the universe as we see it, including things like human beings and, you know, other animals, we have extremely good explanations for why they have the properties they have. And those explanations are completely inconsistent with a literalist reading of uh, traditional uh, uh, ancient scriptures. Uh, so leaving it at that point, that's all I wanted to say on that particular, particular thing, and I guess I'll shut up now. <laughs> Just one brief uh, response to that. That is the, the converse of, uh, of the concern that I would say that we have. Not only is there the concern about the respect for the practices, the beliefs, and the, and the integrity of the individuals who receive instruction at our hands in, in, in schooling uh, for the context in which they hear things, but also to not impose an opposite that is as absolute. So uh, in quoting again uh, John Paul II, who I would have to say certainly does it better than I, said a threat to be reckoned with is scientism, the philosophical notion which refuses to admit the validity of forms of knowledge other than those of the positive sciences, and, it and in that way relegating religious, theological, ethical, aesthetic knowledge to the realm of mere fantasy. I think we do an injustice to students if we do not acknowledge that for them, their worldview is very much formed by what their parents have passed on to them, what their faith communities are, what are the ethic of our nation and our culture here in the United States has, and to suggest that um, there is something that just casts that aside as mere fantasy is as disrespectful as teaching a particular teaching that would be offensive to any particular community, a perspective that is, that is essentially Christian only or, or does not even acknowledge those who choose not to have uh, a particular belief system or, or of, of that nature that we commonly call religion. Let me try to speak about it. Because we're in a university, here there are different departments, different schools. And those who specialize are in each school. Those who are teaching English grammar have learned to use, a speech, certainly in the, in the context of English, a given vocabulary. And they're able to use the vocabulary to tell a story. They would have a hard time doing that with algebraic symbols. That the discipline of algebra is a good discipline and it has a purpose unto itself. But you can't tell a story very well with algebraic symbols, and you can't do math very well with the English language out of a dictionary. There are different disciplines, equally important, equally good, but have different purposes. So true would be the debate that we are having here. You see, religion is a discipline. It's purpose to answer two and only two questions. Who did it and why? <laughs> Who did it and why? That's it. But there are other disciplines that are terribly important, who have different questions like, how was it done? When was it done? Where was it done? What was done? Now, if we ask the disciplines that are not religious to answer religious questions, it'd be like asking algebra to write us a great novel. You see? And so what we need to do as educators, all of us, is make sure that we don't ask one discipline to try to respond to concerns of another. The second thing I'd like to suggest is with regard to a deity. 
we need to realize that a number of the religions that are out there may or may not acknowledge a superhuman deity. For instance, the Church of Scientology does not acknowledge a superhuman de deity. It says that each of us is divine. If we can just remove that which is in the way of that and, ga and gain some new knowledge, we are the divine beings. And so we have to be careful even with regard to how we use the word God. If one claims that he or she does not believe in God, does that make him or her God in that sense, setting the moral code that he or she follows? Remember, religion is a system of beliefs. And that system of beliefs is, is, determines how one behaves. If I say there's no other being to do that except me, then I become, in the language I'm suggesting, I become God. Uh, did you want to? Can I open up to uh, questions? I think uh, rather than taking a break, because I think it, with this number of people, uh, let me encourage you when we're when we're done with it, be sure to stop and get some snacks on the way out. But I think it might be good to move to uh, questions from from the audience. Question revolves. I, I need to try to repeat some of the questions because we don't have microphones out here relating to censorship and, and literature um, and how, how might uh, each of the faith communities respond to the, that kind of issue and, and the challenges that that presents. It should probably come as no surprise. I'm, I'm vigorously opposed to censorship uh, and I think that uh, uh, teachers uh, ought to whatever extent possible just to ignore or work around uh, this, this sort of nonsense. In opening remarks, I suggested that our goal is to strengthen community and I tried to outline some of the marks of a stronger community. If censorship is understood as that which erodes that community, that which denigrates another human being, that which belittles another human being, then I suspect there's a place for censorship to preserve the integrity of our community. If, on the other hand, that censorship is designed to destroy the individual who has gifts, and that individual is seen as valuable and precious, then we should guard against censorship if it's going to destroy the gifts that God's people have. I think the, the mark is that we have to censor, all of us censor to some degree, the words I choose, I've censored from a whole vocabulary I use. I've chosen certain words as opposed to others. So censorship itself is a natural process. The question is, what is the measure that I use to, to censor? What am I trying to accomplish by that censorship? And what I'm suggesting, as I did my open remarks, is that when censorship is used to strengthen our interdependence with one another and affirm the individual gifts, then censorship is not to be shunned. But if censorship divides us, then censorship may indeed be something we should ignore. I'll try and give a, a very practical 
real world uh, uh, experience with this uh, several years ago as the Harry Potter phenomenon became so uh, so important there were some um, again uh, people of particular religious perspectives who had difficulty with that because they saw it as endorsing wizardry and and black magic and all of those kinds of things I would say to you that it has not been a challenge again from the from the Catholic perspective or in the Catholic school perspective because uh, we would look at this as simply an opportunity to indulge a particular creative bent, but not necessarily uh, an explanation in our worldview of how things are as they are and who did it and why and all of that, uh, which I, I think is a great line that I will take away <laughs> from this, I assure you. <laughs> um, so. In our Catholic schools, I want to say to you, um, a similar struggle that was faced by the public schools, we had the same uh, concern. We had parents who have thought that, well, we're against that, aren't we? And they represent a particular either spectrum, part of the spectrum of, of faith belief, or perhaps uninformed as to what, in fact, our faith is or isn't for or against uh, in, in that manner. So I would suggest to you that the general con uh, community norms and standards are going to fit and work for, for the Catholic faithful in, in your classrooms in the public school setting without a, a serious challenge. Last but not least, I do always ask that folks remember that whatever the schooling organization is, whether it's a religious denomination school or a public school, we are partners with parents for the education of their children. And so we do need to have a respectful dialogue with. There is a, a point at which I would simply say that some things have to be moved aside and are there options for the individual that allow them some um, ways to avoid something that might be offensive for someone that isn't for me. That would be my only concern with, with regard to that. But to say that things are forbidden, not from our perspective. Yeah, there is a lot of knowledge out there. And uh, we are, as teacher, we are. it's available for us to read uh, uh, all of it. But uh, uh, especially in elementary and higher and secondary education, uh, like he said, we work with parents. And our job, uh, your job as teachers, uh, is to help the, the student develop uh, a, a method of uh, reading, understanding, development, his character, and his ability to knowledge. Uh, but we have to be ourselves, our controller, not to be uh, our somebody tell us to sense it. There is some knowledge uh, we have to make, uh, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> balance what kind of knowledge. Like I was reading, uh, for example, two days ago, a student was given assignment to read, and she was about graphic description of sexual activities. You know, it has to, especially for under uh, underage students, we have to have common sense. Uh, surely, when you are in college, uh, there is no censorship. You can read and so, see everything, but we have to enhance the character and. Uh, understand also the values and beliefs that that student carries with him so we don't offend him or her in any way or her and their parents. So uh, we have to be the, our own uh, soldier controlling what knowledge. And very important, we cannot promote knowledge that demote people of any color or race or because of our ethnic association. That's very important. 
uh, aspect as a relation. In fact, we should enhance the relationship because I think there is a lot of work to be done because there is this, there is no connections uh, and, uh, between cultures. There is so many cultural diversity, but there is no connection. I see it when I go and give lectures in colleges and high schools and see uh, there is so much to be done. So we have to be selective ourselves and uh, what appropriate knowledge and assignments and separate fiction from reality. There is fiction and reality. Barter is still a fiction. <laughs> Harry Barter is still a fiction. Teacher, um, ooh, awesome! I love it. Um, any any chance to hear my voice louder? Um, my my question comes down to how do you justify your um, annoyance with other theories being taught alongside yours? Um, and and, and uh, you ask for respect of your beliefs of, of evolution, and how do you justify that with um, a desire to not at least mention, if not teach, the other theories that are out there? Well, there's a there's a very big difference, I think, between natural selection, which is the theory that explains the fact of evolution, uh, and this bizarre thing called creationism, uh, which has also uh, recently been uh, tarted up as intelligent design theory. Uh, and the difference is that uh, the theory of natural selection is a scientific theory. That it's well supported. It's got excellent evidence. Uh, it, has, it does precisely what we demand of scientific theories. It explains the way things are. It predicts uh, what we're likely to find when we go look. Uh, it gives us you know, a, a, a rational explanation for a phenomenon that we seek to explain. Other th so-called theories uh, do none of that. Um, and to that extent, they're not scientific theories. Do you want to teach them in a sociology class? fine. Teach it alongside uh, whatever else. Uh, but it can't be taught as a scientific theory for the simple fact that it isn't a scientific theory. Any more than, you know, uh, in a discussion of biology, uh, you know, spending a week uh, or on, uh, you know, the biology of the zombie. Um, I mean, it just, there aren't any zombies. Hate to break it to you. Uh, in a physics class, we wouldn't teach, <laughs> we wouldn't teach the physics of Middle Earth. Um, right, as physics, 
Okay. Now, do you think that you know people uh, that there are the variety of other creation stories that are out there? Uh, is there a place for them? Absolutely. It is not a science class because they aren't scientific theories. I knew you meant to be my best friend. <laughs> you see, the answer that my new best friend has offered is the same as the one I offered to you earlier. Absolutely. What we hear in the so-called creationist stories is an attempt to speak to who did it and why, not how. And evolution is how. And you can't get one discipline to do the discipline of another. Go ahead. Come up to the microphone. Hi. Um, my name is Amanda. Um, I did Arabic minor at the University of Florida before I came up here, so I'm glad that we have an Islam representative. That's great. Um, the question, I'm here at an elementary education master's program, so I uh, just a question for you. In the classroom, we do, sorry, I'm not close enough. <laughs> um, we do try to kind of touch on the religions, you know, like Judaism, Islam, Christianity. Is that okay? Um, for atheism, there's not really a holiday. You have Yom Kippur, you have Christmas, you have Ramadan. You know, you don't, you don't really have a time where you can easily segue that into the classroom. So the other other gentlemen were talking about how they have challenges, and you were talking about annoyances. You know, so is there an active thing that you're doing to put that into the classroom? I mean, like that's that's an annoyance, but how do we as teachers? I mean, I'm glad that you're here representing yourself, but what do we do to appease you? You know, so I, I want children to be able to know that atheism is a choice, but it's like, oh, well, you cannot participate. You know, I mean, so what is, I mean, not to be cynical, but what is your response to that? Look, I, uh, atheists, you know, not believing in sort of, you know, supernatural entities, objects, or processes, uh, you know, we're sort of, when it comes to holidays, we're woefully short. I, I, I guess we could, you know, Darwin's birthday, maybe, um, right, uh, you know, Hubble Day, when we could explain that the universe is expanding, or, or or, or, or something like that, but uh, but to be a, a little bit uh, serious for a moment, I mean there there is you know it's, sort of, it's characteristic of atheism that there is as it were no positive doctrine about and there's sort of no practice uh, or any of this sort of stuff and this is where real holidays come from, uh, you know I mean it might uh, so uh, I'll take Christmas um, <laughs> no well, no Christmas seriously if you look at the history of uh, history of the development of, uh, of of the Christian celebrations I mean the whole business with you know trees is derived from Nordic tree worship uh, and Santa Claus you know the big guy in the red suit is clearly a late imposition uh, the date of Christ's birth is completely undetermined by any scriptural evidence it, uh, the tradition um, you know, that leaves it entirely open. Uh, and as it happened, you know, early first century Christians or second century, whatever, uh, sort of you know, moved the uh, Christ the main Christian holiday to fall uh, right between. Uh, so it was basically it was, uh, uh, shortly after the uh, after the solstice, and uh, you know, we'll, so we'll, we'll take that one. But <laughs> maybe we could share it. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are subject to the laws of the land with regard to your question. Perhaps we collectively can come up with a new way to understand that. Suppose we were to say that we're going to organize education in a public setting so that each student can take 10 personal days for any reason. <laughs> and they may or may not choose to do them because in their religious tradition they want to honor Good Friday, Christmas, and Easter. Or in their tradition, they want not to honor those events, but they want to go to a planetarium. Okay? But the point is that if we want to make sure we do not impose religion on others, 
We should give them the freedom to express their religious uh, convictions. Now, I realize there's some practical implications of that, including the problem with the, the school boards. But nonetheless, and, and of course, getting substitute teachers for, for those persons. But nonetheless, maybe that's a worthy goal. Okay. Hello. Um, as teachers and in any other profession, we are expected to uh, leave our personal issues and our personal feelings at the door because we are there to do a job. Why shouldn't we expect the same of students? They are in the schools to do a job, and that is to learn the lessons that are given. And it, it is up to them to take what they've learned and absorb it, learn from it, grow. And they have that option to believe what they'd like. Why should we single out any other students that may not be able to participate in certain activities because their religion says they can't? Because then we are, as teachers, now we are conflicted because we do not have that opportunity to give each student an equal opportunity. How do we do that? <laughs> I don't mean to monopolize the mic. Please forgive me for that. But I think you're right, you see. The suggestion I made much earlier was not that either the teacher or the student impose their religion on the classroom but that the teacher provide opportunity for each student, including the teacher, to express his or her faith in a single event, okay? Mm -hmm. I think it would be a mistake for a teacher to teach in the classroom his or her own religious perspective, regardless of what it might be, because teachers are, in some sense, agents of the state, and therefore they would be in violation of the Constitution if they did impose in that classroom their religious perspective. Mm -hmm. But if they offer this as an educational opportunity to know more about differing religious points of view, then I think that would be legitimate. This might be helpful as an administrator who supervised teachers before. Those issues would come up. It is not a cop-out to say to, to someone, this is not something that I would, but to direct them back to their, to their parents, because that's where the partnership comes in with parents. But let me give you an example outside of the religion issue. You have a responsibility to teach uh, uh, civics and responsibility as a citizen and all of those things. But you have a responsibility not to come in and impose a particular political platform or stand. Mm -hmm. You have an obligation to teach across the curriculum, um, Republican, uh, independent, uh, you know, Democrat, uh, different uh, political postures and, and platforms and all of those without espousing one in particular because, again, that would be an imposition of something that would be inappropriate. And here it's the, the age-appropriateness concern. We have, certainly, you are, are learning in, the, in, your, in your field of, of responsibilities and, and expertise that imposing certain things before there is a, uh, an, an ability or a readiness for a student to be able to integrate that into a larger worldview or, world, uh, or a, a understanding is a challenge. So I would say to you to treat those issues of religious concern the same as you would uh, teaching the importance of citizenship and the responsibilities, the rights, the privileges, the responsibilities, all of that. And yes, as in teaching American government, for example, 
the, the party system and the platforms and the approaches without imposing one particular one. Mm -hmm. It would be inappropriate for you to go in and say, and this candidate is the candidate mm -hmm. that should be voted for. You should vote. You should participate when the law allows you to do that, but without imposing a particular uh, aspect. I would say the same is true of religions, to say there are issues that are going to be beyond our purview here. I would not want you to expect to teach that and, and, res and respect that of students as well. Does that help? Yes. <clears throat> as a teacher, uh, we provide a, a teacher's role to provide knowledge to help the students develop his uh, scope of knowledge about life, about the environment, about the world, and the, develop the can, character understanding of uh, uh, and develop certain uh, 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 certain uh, career uh, direction, whether it be a teacher or scientist or something. So. As a teacher, that's what your job, to help him to see the resources or give him, so enlighten himself to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, we have in so many problems, students do not know how to read at certain levels, do not know how to write a decent paragraph, you know, expressing themselves, uh, you know. So we have, for example, this issue, the ability to read and write. Uh, I, I recently learned, you know, some even players making millions, they don't know how to read. Uh, so uh, help them develop these basic skills, uh, the ability to understand. There are people don't, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. I was uh, filing an airport to file an application and I bought the, where, where I was born, I bought, I bought down Jerusalem. And 15 minutes, and I was surprised what's taking her. And I asked her, what's the problem? I said, where is Jerusalem? <laughs> now she's in a, working in the security department in the airport, you know, of all places. Uh, so that she didn't know what Jerusalem is. So uh, develop understanding of the world, the geography world. So we provide them knowledge to increase their knowledge, widen their scope beyond just Tampa. You know, some people don't know where is, uh, Crystal Springs are here, you know. So uh, that's what, provide knowledge to increase their scope, understanding the world. And there, are, there is uh, 180 countries in the world, and there are so many ethnic groups. And that's uh, the religious value is that sometimes, <clears throat> you know, like especially at early age, uh, we find that like Christmas season, they come and uh, uh, and uh, let's celebrate the spirit of Christmas, but, but you have to be aware that the students who are different, uh, you know, religions that be, uh, be known to their parents, and that's what we're doing, and if you, you know, it's okay if you want to take your child or, or so forth. Thank you. You're welcome. Um. I have a little brother, he's uh, 15 years old, and he's a person of a uh, strong faith in uh, the Christian God. Um, he, along with uh, the rest of society, like um, Dr. Joseph mentioned, um, views uh, atheism as uh, something bad, as somebody, an atheist is somebody who has uh, poor morals or is a bad person. Now, my problem is that um, my little brother, who views me, I also don't believe in uh, a personal God or a supernatural being, and he views me as somebody who has um, bad morals. What are some ways do you think um, society can rid itself of its uh, negative connotation towards atheism and atheists? 
If I only knew. Uh, I think part of the, uh, you know, what, what the dynamic at work here is that, uh, you know, in the United States there's, a, there's just a, a, an overwhelming number of, uh, percentage of, of, of religiously minded people and there's this assumption of sort of universalism that everybody uh, really buys into this project. I mean, in, in Europe, uh, the level of religious observance is extremely low by American standards, and the number of people who uh, are, I mean, uh, are non-believers is, is, is uh, dramatically higher. Uh, and I think that you know the only real uh, way to overcome the stigma of, of atheism, the, the, the assumption that if you're an atheist, you know, you, you like to torture kittens and uh, <laughs> you know you steal things, and you'll never pay your bills or something like that. Uh, yeah, the only way is, is for, I guess, to some degree for atheists to become somewhat more uh, visible. Uh, there's something very odd about the idea that you could only be moral if you were believing in the existence of some supernatural punishment, because then your moral behavior is really entirely self-interested. I mean, if you didn't have this belief, you'd be killing people, it seems to be the story. Uh, and the only thing that keeps you in check is the fear of a wrathful God who will torture you uh, throughout all eternity. Um, if that's the motivation for behaving morally, then you really are a very greedy, self-interested person. Uh, why not, you know, be charitable and kind, et cetera, uh, and accepting to people because you think that's the right thing to do, rather than because you think you're going to get some big payoff or you're going to be avoiding some huge penalty. So you might want to try and make that point. <laughs> Although people get offended when when you try to, when you suggest that their moral behavior might be due to some kind of you know deep deeply seated uh, self-interest. Uh, but no, I do believe that it is actually a, a problem. It's it's more uh, I think a problem in the United States than it is elsewhere that I have lived where. Uh, I mean, in France, uh, for example, or Germany, it's just, you know, the, the very idea of, uh, you know, connecting religion to morality has always seemed to be a little bit puzzling, um, in part because the uh, the very bloody history of uh, religion uh, in, in Europe, um, the idea that, uh, you know, religion brings you good things has uh, not necessarily been borne out. Anyway, I'll stop there. Uh, let me try not to respond too quick to that last comment. There were an awful lot of people dying at gulags in the Soviet Union, too. So I think we have to be careful not to use prejudicial comments from either perspective. I tried at the outset to suggest that we honor differing points of view. And we don't begin by denigrating each other, no matter what may be our points of view, whether we be atheists or Roman Catholics or Muslims or Episcopalians. Each has its place, and we can benefit from the other so that those who are atheists can remind me that I can't make a religion, have my religion become a science. And I can't let them get away with believing that religion can be used as a club. Remember that the moral codes we have, what determines them is not so much the God we believe in, but mutual and personal self-interests. What's going to be the moral code you have? What's going to benefit you? And what's the more code you have that you reject is the one that doesn't benefit you. And the reason you don't kill people is because you don't get killed. That's the reason, not because God told you or not. I happen to think there's some nice things about the codes that we hear in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Where else, for instance, do you have a law that says take a day off once a week? Okay? And that's the fourth commandment, the Ten Commandments, a Judeo-Christian view, is where the God that we worship says take off one day each week. That's kind of nice to know. 
I'm also glad to know that within that code of Ten Commandments, there's one that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's hard enough to keep my one wife happy, let alone several, okay? <laughs> so there are some nice things about those codes, but it's also, you see, self-interest. I need time for renewal. It's not hard for me to honor that law. I'm really glad I have one wife. I don't really want to share myself with others or have her, for that matter, have more than one husband. And so the codes that you and I have, our moral codes, are largely ones that come out of our personal interests. We can attribute them to God if we choose. And many of us have discovered the interests of individuals throughout the last 4,000 years when codified end up with a very common code that atheists and deists by every stripe generally agree upon. Atheists would say, although it may not be from God, I'm not going to kill somebody. And Christians would say the same. This is an adage that uh, certainly becomes part of the religious dialogue that is very much uh, the case that grace builds on nature. And in fact, we have the belief that the innate goodness of the human person, whether we understand it as coming from God as we name it, or from the innate um, natural goodness of the human person, is the foundational platform. For us, the religious principles that we espouse that lead us to certain ways of action, we see as an opportunity to and, uh, encourage and build and grow that which is innately good in us from the very beginning. In the, in the Christian tradition, the, the, um, the, the statement is that God found everything that he created to be very good. And that is the essence of the foundation. Everything else that has been laid upon it is a gloss on that text, in a sense, is a way of adding, if this is what we understand to be very good, if we understand human life to be sacred, if we understand human life to be uh, of inestimable value, then it only is logically important that we would therefore respect it in a variety of ways, by not only ending it in dramatic ways, but how we treat one another, how we speak about one another, how we don't defame one another, how we apply those things that have become part of our uh, communal standards, as well as those religious principles that, that we just see as affirming and, and endorsing and encouraging. Grace, or really religious word, is simply that ability to make all that is good and intended to be good operative. And that is, um, perhaps helpful to you, that the, the basic foundations are it's not that any human person, regardless of their belief systems or whatever, is not essentially good, whether we see that from the lens of a religious perspective or from a philosophical viewpoint or whatever. We are good and intended toward good and tend toward good with a proclivity to not always being so good. And that's the human experience. And we simply look to our God and to our faith tradition to accentuate the good and to avoid that which in us is selfish or self-centered or, or not other-centered or more, more appropriately concerned about others. Just briefly, I, I think uh, we are as a human influenced by knowledge. Knowledge is power. The more you know, the less you fear, the less you hate. The less you know, the more you fear, the more you hate. So keep that in mind. Hello. Um, going back to public schools, I'm a secondary, um, I'm a secondary ed social sciences major. And uh, the reality of our time is that there are various conflicts on, in this world. 
And I'm an atheist, and I kind of stumble over myself when I talk about religion, but one of the realities that I have to teach is the Middle Eastern conflict. How do I teach that in, say, a sixth grade classroom without offending anybody? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, the easiest way to try and avoid offending in, uh, people is probably to say nothing, but that's inconsistent with teaching them. Uh, I think, uh, frankly, the only uh, option that you have is to, uh, you know, stick to the facts. Uh, there's an agreed upon historical record uh, of what happened, uh, of who did what to whom. Um, there are, you know, a lot of things that can be can, can, can be said about that. But if you stick to sort of what is what is known or what is you know, what, what, what the things we have excellent you know objective evidence for, um, you know, that's probably uh, as far as you can go. Uh, if you get to questions about, you know, um, is it literally the case that you know God gave all of this land to one group or another? Well, you know, <laughs> obviously you can teach that there are some people who believe this. You know, people who believe in a greater Israel think that uh, essentially, you know, uh, all of uh, Palestine belongs to them by some divine right. Others, on the other side, believe that no, there's a special you know, granting of this uh, piece of real estate to uh, uh, to one group or another. But I think that um, when you get to that. Um, you know, again, just trying to stick to the facts and say, these are the beliefs, let's not go too deeply into the justifications that people think they have for these beliefs and sort of leave it at that. That would be my suggestion. Before we approach the questions of the Middle East, and I think you probably are meeting the issues between Palestinians and Israelis, be very careful where you start counting. Uh, because you see, if you, if you look at the history of that region, Originally, there were people of no religious conviction, a relatively small number of people that lived in what was then the land of Canaan. And Abraham, as he discovers for the first time monotheism, is, goes into a land. So now before there were Jews, before there were Christians, before there were Muslims, there's an invasion of that land. Now, where do you want to start counting, you see? You start as the citizens with no religious conviction who predate even Abraham? Do you talk about Abraham who even predates Judaism? Because Judaism itself doesn't really originate until the conquest with Joshua. Or maybe if you want to go a little earlier with Moses. So who were the people in Egypt? Were they, they were obviously pre-Jewish, but they had a conquest, okay? So where do you start counting? So I would suggest to teachers, that you talk not about the religious issues there. Most of us who spend a lifetime studying religion exclusively can't answer your question. But we can talk about the human dynamic of greed and the desire that the human dynamic to control it through power and to have, and be greedy gets in the way of even the best of our religious convictions. And those of us who are from the Judeo-Christian traditions, especially we who speak in the Christian tradition, want to speak about that as one manifestation of sin. That all the human condition includes that all of us have to guard against greed, taking things that belong to others under our own purview. So I would suggest that you stay away from the religious aspects because you'll be in a debate as to when do you start counting. But you can speak about the human condition of greed. I, <clears throat> I say professors in college and university have a hard time to explain it. I don't know how you're going to be able to explain this grader, you know. Uh, it's very, very tough to teach like this, as he said, it's true. 
uh, I think you have to look which uh, the book, uh, who adopted the book, who, what the book says about it, but I think it's very hard to teach for many aspects, really hard. Uh, and like you said, the best way just go, you know, if, even if you talk to use United Nations, it's, it's very tough to teach. Simple. This is that uh, challenge of the boundary between the how and the why. <laughs> and that's the issue right there. And so there is, I think, a, a need to step into a little bit of the why because it motivated how groups came together based on their beliefs or understanding as to who has possession of the land and all of those issues, but to avoid very carefully moving so far beyond that boundary. Part of the explanation of the dynamics of what occurred and has occurred and continues to occur is, is a why question. But the why isn't ultimately the question about the, the creator, you know, um, human being relationship, but why the motivation of individuals would have been justified by faith or not justified by faith beliefs. And so, just as anything else, nationalism has the same kind of impact. Why would one group move into an Anschluss, another area of the European uh, lands? Because there was this sense that the nationally are, uh, we are entitled to these lands, same kinds of principles. I think it, it just is one of those gray areas that we have to be very cautious of and appropriately, I would say, yes, stick to the facts. Those of us who visit would wonder why anybody wants it anyway. Uh, Jerusalem sits on a hill, and it's in a barren desert, and, they, and there's no water. Why would you want it anyway? <laughs> Probably have time for just one or two more questions. All right. Well, I guess I'm pretty happy I got in here. Um, first, we were talking about religions and religious days. I personally like to view those as days with my family, like Christmas, Easter. I think family is very important and it you know, changes our aspects on our lives in general. So that's like a day where all of my family gets to get together and we all get to spend a day together. So that's the way I like to look at it. My question is, since this is a very diverse panel, we can talk about as teachers, I think it's more important for us to teach children about the various religions so it teaches respect at the very least, tolerance. How do we do that without offending or you know, upsetting people? And can we get it to a point where the students respect each other's religions and prevent maybe a future war or any other wars in the Middle East as it is? Um, tough question. Uh, you know, bringing in you know, religious diversity in the classroom, I mean, how do you sort of negotiate that without stepping on toes? Uh, I, again, I guess go back to the slogan of sort of just you know, stick to the facts that you know, there are these belief systems, uh, these are what they are constituted of, uh, these are the, the traditions, etc. Here's some of the history uh, of it. Without trying to say that you know this is a really good one and this is a really weird one, uh, or you know uh, th things of that nature, just sort of uh, and. I think it's actually, I mean, one way to, to, to gain respect for uh, religion, uh, which I actually have, believe it or not, I think it's been an enormous 
uh, force for both good and evil, but uh, plenty of good uh, has come out of, uh, out of religion. I think one way to think of it is that religion does not necessarily make people better or worse. It uh, is one of those things like uh, you know, binding together in a society. It simply gives him greater power, both for, for, for good and for ill, I think. Um, and so to sort of teach uh, sort of the, as I, as I can, to go back to the, the story, just you know, the, the facts of, of how different communities are organized, how different faith communities are organized, and what they take to be important or essential, and, and where they differ, and sort of leave it at that. I hope you'll hear my appeal that you go to original sources before you approach questions of religion. Uh, if you want to speak about Islam, take some time to read the Quran and talk to a, a local religious leader within the Islamic community and make sure that you report not prejudice or incomplete information, but accurate information. If you want to speak about Judaism, do much the same. If you want to speak about Christianity, do much the same. And remember that that each of those religious entities that are monotheistic have within them a variety of shades and variations. And so that the Orthodox churches of the East, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Protestant Church of the West have some things in common, but believe me, Episcopalians and Baptists are about as far apart <laughs> as my new best friend on aisle, okay? <laughs> you see that the temptation on our part is to, teach, to, know, to speak about the rumors we've heard from others. And I really urge you, before you teach, to make sure you've had the original sources and teach from them, not from bias or prejudice. Just very briefly, I think all of us have become more and more subject to uh, religion of the soundbite. And that is a challenge even for us who work very much so with folks. That question that I said to you with, with the Harry Potter or why is my Catholic student in a Catholic school, for example, celebrating Halloween? I thought we were against that. The reality is it's only a piece of a whole construct and a whole set of knowledge. And more and more as information just goes beyond anyone's ability to get a, a grasp on, it becomes more complex and more difficult. And so to try and avoid that and absolutely go to the sources, go to the authentic texts, look at those things. Difficult to navigate on the internet to find those sources that can be demonstrated as, as authentic and appropriate uh, without some sort of prejudice of their own. It's a challenge, but I think if you are committed to doing that, just as you would to um, teaching about all that is best about a political system or whatever, you can, you can do that. It's about your integrity and your honesty and your desire to provide for students because in the end we're teaching students, not subject, not content, not matter, not science, not faith, not anything. We are teaching individuals in a relationship with them. Uh, do your research when you teach, but also make your students present themselves and teach the, the, what their beliefs and present to each other. Get the students and uh, present their face so they interact with each other and understand uh, two things, you know. Do your research and let them teach, them, uh, teach the others about their faith. I think one last question. You were patiently waiting. Uh, this question is probably kind of hard to answer by an atheist because you don't have an organization, but um, I've found in, in my life and my experience that I had to examine uh, my religion very thoroughly, and I, I came to find that one religion didn't really uh, encompass the beliefs that I had about the world, and I, I had to piece together things from uh, different religions. And 
although I still consider myself a Christian, I, I don't know if I would directly fit into any uh, subcategory. How easy or difficult is it for uh, different churches to accept people that maybe want to be involved in their church but don't really have the uh, specific set of beliefs that that church carries? Although not all Episcopalians go to church, neither do all atheists belong to atheistic societies. There are societies for atheists who choose to share their points of view, and there are churches for Episcopalians and for Catholics. So one's activity in that, that community varies significantly. In the Episcopal Church, and I suspect the other denominations represented among us, there are opportunities for inquirers. I want to offer to you an image that might be helpful to you. Some of you may have seen in your history books the architecture of the temple in the city of Jerusalem before it was destroyed in 70 AD. If you look very carefully at that, it was roughly a square in shape. But the entrance to that building had what was called the Court of the Gentiles. And there was a wall or a partition between the non-Jew who wanted to know more about Judaism. They had the Court of the Gentile. Then there was another larger section for the faithful. Now, in that day, it was divided so that males were on one side and females on the other side. That's why there's an aisle in your church, okay? And then there was, in your churches, what in the Jewish temple was a screen that separated where the people worshipped from the holy place, and ultimately the holy of holies, where the tabernacle was. Maybe that image, architecturally, would be a way to speak to your question. There's always an opportunity for the inquirer in the quote, court of the Gentiles. There's a place for persons who have moved beyond that, but still are questioning some aspects of their faith in the place that people gather. And there's a place still further along the line for those who are more convinced and more clear in the holy area. I think we need to see it as a movement, not a single location. I like to emphasize whenever I'm uh, trying to teach the specifics of Catholicism to recognize the areas where there is a great deal of common ground with our Christian brothers and sisters and across the uh, other great world religions as well. When I uh, point out that uh, embracing a particular uniqueness does not necessarily call into question or say that something else is mere fallacy. Uh, again, I, I just redound to uh, Pope John Paul II who said it would be um, certainly inappropriate for anyone to presume that in our understanding God would choose to exclude anyone from his desire to be in relationship with creation. So from the organized, monotheistic, religious perspective, that's what I would suggest to you. And so to continue to search and find, I, I think that is absolutely the spark of, in our understanding or in our language, the spark of the divine inside looking to connect with, with uh, the eternal creator. It is difficult to say that there is one specific thing. There is no homogenized Catholic, I assure you. There is a long and wide, and sometimes it seems widening, spectrum uh, along the, the, the entire um, realm of Catholicism that would, would challenge being defined very, very narrowly. And so I would say to you, find kinship find the opportunity that there is a place that can answer most of your questions, but I don't think that anyone would, would propose that anyone can have every single question answered because there's, an un, there's a restlessness in the human person 
that we would say in uh, religious constructs can only be answered afterwards. Hope that's helpful. Uh, you're welcome to come and answer and try to answer some of your concerns. <laughs> uh, I, I think that this has been very, very uh, fruitful for thought and discussion. Um, I, I would like to express our appreciation for all of you coming and sharing your thoughts and engaging in a dialogue and for the audience as well. Remember, there are two more sessions in this series. Uh, and we welcome you to come back and hopefully uh, ask more questions.